Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, all you heroes and champions, crows, pirates, and inquisitors. Welcome to the Dragon Age Lorecast. I'm Shelby. And I'm Austin. And we are so excited to bring you this podcast. Every episode, we'll be talking about a different topic in the Dragon Age universe. From the Maker to Lyrium to Aravels, we will cover it all. There will be spoilers. And always remember, swooping is bad. Hey, Shelby. Hey, Austin. You ready to talk about some Dragon Age? I am. We um, haven't talked about Dragon Age in like two weeks. So yeah, yeah, definitely. Excited to get back to it. Well, as you all know, we are continuing our Factions of Thetis series. And so last week we talked about the Templars. And this week we're going to be discussing something very adjacent to the Templars. Um, and that is the Seekers, who... If you just play the games, you kind of know just a little bit about. Um, you definitely learn more in Dragon Age Inquisition, but if you're not a Codex reader like Austin, you know you might not learn these things. True, um, true. And if you didn't read Asunder and you just played Inquisition, there's still probably a lot of things you missed out on um, about the Seekers. Mm-hmm. You want to just dive in? Sure. All right. Well, you know, I always start with my fun facts. Mm -hmm. And the first fun fact I have is their full name. Their full name is the Seekers of Truth. And they were originally part of the First Inquisition. So they did not just like come out of nowhere. They did not start as their own thing. They started as part of the First Inquisition. And that will be really important. And we'll get into it a little bit later. Um, And if you've already listened to some of our other episodes, we've talked a little bit about the First Inquisition already. Um, And if you are a fan of Inquisition then you will know that Cassandra Pentagast, who's one of my favorite characters. Um, that's she not is... her full name. Okay, well, I don't remember all 18 of her names. So, <laughs> but she is a member of the Seekers. Um, and part of her personal quest in that game is involved with the Seekers. So, that's how we get a lot of this information. So the Seekers as an organization, they act as a check on the power of the Templars. And I think that's why a lot of people don't know about them because they're pretty secretive. Um, and they also act and behave in a very investigative and like interrogative way. Um, they're not trying to be public about who they are. They're trying to be more in the shadows behind the scenes kind of things, generally, because their intention is to root out corruption and protect the Chantry from any, like, internal threats as well as external threats. So they also may become, not always, but may become involved in the hunting of particularly cunning or evasive apostates. So that's a little bit about what they do. But it's also really, really important to note that generally Templars fear and despise the Seekers because the Seekers involve themselves when the, when the Templars are making mistakes or being corrupt or being unjust or basically just not doing their job. Yes. And if you're ever like wondering, like the question can arise, like with the Mage Templar debate about like, you know, like who watches the Watchers, like who watches the Templars? And the answer is the Seekers. The Seekers, the seekers watch right. the Templars. Right, exactly. And like, it's definitely not a perfect system by any means because who watches the Seekers? Well, technically the Divine, but also as we know from Asunder and Dragon Age Inquisition, if this system begins to break down at all, especially with the head of the Seekers, 
it's really easy for the Templars and the Seekers to kind of take control of everyone else or at least break away and try to do that. So um, let's move on a little bit. So generally the right hand of the divine is almost always a Seeker and that's, that's what Cassandra's role is before she begins the Inquisition. Um, so they very much are seen as like enforcers of Chantry law. So if Templars are like the everyday police force of Thetis, then Seekers are more like um, a middle ground between the military, spies, the FBI, and the CIA kind of all rolled into one. Um, and it's also really important to note that a senior Seeker outranks all Templars. So like the lowest, like regular everyday seeker outranks the night vigilant, Mm -hmm. which is the top of the top of the Templar order. So that creates, that creates a really interesting power dynamic. Well, yeah. And you kind of see this in the um, Dawn of the Seeker animated film with, Mm -hmm. Which follows Cassandra's kind of like what she was doing before she sent to find and interrogate Varric and figure out what's going on in Kirkwall. Uh, I think it's way before that, though. Well, it ends with the Divine giving her the writ of the Inquisition. I don't think so, because the Div- the Divine in the movie is the one before Divine Justinia. Yes, that is correct. But there is that big thing where she hands her the book that has, like, the writ to, like, start the Inquisition. I don't remember that. Um, But, I mean, I believe you. But, yeah, there's just the whole time where she's serving as the right hand before she goes to to interrogate Barrett and everything. Um, And then, so we have, but they talk, what my point was that in that film, you see, like, the almost the relationship between the seekers and the templars in a point of like the templars kind of like are vying for a point of like well you could use the templars you don't have to use the seekers or whatever to the divine mm-hmm. and very much especially from cassandra a younger member of the seekers she just like well you know templars like what good are you like this sense of se- superiority yeah, and skepticism towards mm. the Templars, yes. which I think makes sense if you think about, and we'll get into this later, but it makes sense if you think about how they exist as two different orders, right? Like, the biggest difference between them is that Templars ingest, take lyrium, and Seekers don't. So, Templars are literally dependent on an addictive and toxic substance, whereas Seekers are not. So, of course, they would have a superiority mm-hmm. complex. It just makes sense. Yes. Okay, well, my last fun fact is um, about the insignia of the Seekers. And it does have a really long history. And it's basically, if you remember it, it's basically an all-seeing eye. Um, and this comes from one of the constellations the Visus constellation. I might be pronouncing that incorrectly, but oh well. Um, so this constellation, according to its codex, used to be the symbol for the Lady of the Skies. If you remember this, also from Inquisition, when you go to the Fallow Mire or um, in the Frostback DLC, you meet some Avar, and they often talk about the Lady of the Skies, and she's kind of their main god or goddess. Um, so this symbol of the Seekers is connected to her from the Avar, which is really interesting connection. Definitely some, some places that they can take that in the future. Nothing, you know, um, official yet, but it's a really interesting connection that I think is worth mentioning. Um, and then also I wanted to mention that the symbol for the Inquisition is the same, It's just the eye with a sword um, behind it. And so it kind of relates to how the Inquisition of the past, the first Inquisition, eventually became the Seekers and the Templars. So the Inquisition symbol was split in half with the Seekers keeping the eye for their organization and the Templars taking the sword for theirs. It's really, it really is poignant in their symbols 
for because the Templars are the military arm of the Chantry. Like, of course, they would take the sword. They're the first line of defense against demons to exert the will of the Chantry. But, like, the Seekers are that behind-the-scene investigative force, the Watchers of the Watchers. Um, and so that all-seeing eye really fits. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think that's a really great point. All right. Well, what about their structure? Okay, so we don't really know. <laughs> um, I feel like it's 50-50 in this season where sometimes we know a lot. And if we know if we know the structure, we know a lot about the structure. And then all the other times are we know nothing or we know this one thing and that's it. Um, and that's about how we are today. Um, generally, the structure is pretty unknown but thought to run parallel to the Templars. The one fact that we do know is that the leader of the Seekers is the High Seeker. That's it. Is it High? It's so interesting because I feel like they do an interesting interchange because because I just played uh, Promised Destruction Quest today. Yeah. Um, and throughout there, Cassandra and the, spoiler alert, the Dead Seekers that you find there all refer to Lucius as Lord Seeker. Right. And but I you're right, like there are other points like in the film and I think in Asunder they refer to High Seeker, so it's maybe they're interchangeable, but Yeah, I, I think it has to be interchangeable, um because it's they're both referred to so often and we don't really know. Um yeah, we don't really know. I think they're both both are accurate to refer to the top dog um, of the Seeker, but just know sometimes the game says hi, sometimes the game says Lord. They're both pretty accurate, but again, we chalk this up to we don't really know much about the structure. If if we knew as a much as much about this structure of the Seekers as we do the Templars, we could probably give you a, a little bit more of a definitive answer, but we just can't. And they might not be as structured because there's not as many of them. That's true, and also they might not be as structured because there's not as much of a need for them to be structured. Right. They're only overseeing Templars, so you know you send one or two out to a circle to examine, investigate, and watch them. You don't need you know eighteen different ranks to do all this other stuff that you would normally need for the Templars. So, right, and they don't send a lot of them. No, one or two, yeah. Cassandra was en route to Kirkwall to basically bring Meredith and the Templars in line. And they were just sending her. Which is frightening. I mean, I think she could take Meredith, but... Well, it's interesting because of... And we can get... I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit later. But a Seeker could very easily take on several Templars with their, their abilities. Oh, yeah. Um, and obviously mages. Right. Because they basically have the ability to manipulate anyone that relies on lyrium. Or magic. Or ma- Yeah. Well, magic is fueled by lyrium. Right. Right. Yeah. So true. Well, let's get into the history a little bit. Um, so, not to beat a dead horse, but we don't know a ton <laughs> about the founding, at least, of the Seekers. But... We do know that they originated sometime before the First Inquisition, but, you know, this is actually kind of a disputed fact. Some people think the Seekers were founded before the First Inquisition, and some people think they were founded as the First Inquisition. But to me, it's kind of like, meh, tomato, tomato, like, they become the First Inquisition. So, to me, that distinction doesn't matter a ton um a quick reminder for those of us who may not remember from previous episodes um but why was the first inquisition founded i was getting there so um yes as a reminder to everyone the first inquisition was founded during a time of like total unrest in thetis like there are apostates running wild like there's all kinds of violence all kinds of fighting just generally like a lawless land. When I read about the first inquisition during this time, I really think a lot about 
the hinterlands during the Mage Templar War, like especially when you first go to the hinterlands, and there's all that fighting everywhere uh, between mages and Templars, and they come out of the woodwork to attack you even, and you're not even taking a side in the war. It really reminds me of that. Um, so it's just generally a lawless place. Um, and, you know, this is before the Chantry existed. So the Chantry, Chantry laws don't exist. So we're talking a long, long time ago. And the first Inquisition, you know, they hunted cultists, rogue mages, apostates, like I've already said, as well as demons and abominations. And, and probably, if I had to guess, a few dark spawn as well. And their goal was to protect all innocent people. Whether or not they did this adequately or fairly is another question, but that was their goal. And that was the time that they first um, came into existence. So this is just a time frame wise. This is kind of happening after Andraste's betrayal and death, but before... Justinia the first is elected divine and establishes. Yes. So that kind of transition between ancient and divine age. Yes, exactly. And I think there's like maybe 300 years um, after Andraste and before the founding of the Chantry. So it's kind of a long time if you really think about it. Um, and like the, the nations, while they've been split up from, you know, Andraste and Mafrath's sons, the borders and the empires are not quite, um, what's the right word? They're not quite like steady. They're not quite stable. They're not quite established, established countries. Right. Thank you. That's what I was looking for. Um, so it, yeah, it would be really lawless, probably lots of like piracy and, and violence and all those kinds of things. So they kind of step in as, um, this organization that wants to help the everyday person. And I, frankly, I can, I can respect that. And like, it makes sense that this kind of time of turmoil comes about, because if we think about our own history, we're talking about the fall of the Tevinter empire for the most part, which, you know, Tevinter has a lot of parallels to Rome. And when Rome fell, Europe kind of went into this time of chaos. Um, That's true. And all these different powers are coming up over Europe. And we see that in Thetis. Like, as yeah. Tevinter Imperium falls, you start to see all of these, the baby steps of these countries coming forth. Navarra, you know, um, Orlais, even a little bit mm -hmm. of Ferelden, even though they'll come much later. But that's a really good point. And I think that's super true. Um, but I did bring, before we move on, I did bring a codex quote, as I usually try to do. Um, and this really gets to the heart of, like, why at the beginning of Inquisition, everyone is, like, afraid of what a second Inquisition will be. Um, and what will that mean? Um, because we can talk all that we want about the goals of the first Inquisition and, like, what they wanted to achieve, but as we know from human history and just even our own lives, what we want to happen isn't always what actually happens. So here's my codex. The seekers came down against every group at one time or another. Their, quote, inquisition, gaining notoriety for being on no one's side but their own. They considered themselves to be good people, however. Followers of the Maker's True Commandments. And that comes from the First Inquisition Codex. So, to me, what this codex says is, like, they only trusted themselves to know what's right, what's moral, what's good. And anyone who dared to, like, step out of line or do something against them was going to be their next target. Yeah. Even if they tried to be good. And it it's very familiar if you've especially if you've played through Trespasser DLC, the kind of state in which you are. It's a very uh, you know cyclical view of history where the Second Inquisition's stance is at the end uh, at the beginning of Trespasser is very similar to what that Codex was talking about. 
there's a lot of people who think the Inquisition, while they did good, they sealed the breach and all of that, that they were bullies and they were seeking to upset the political balance of the world. True. Very true. Okay, well, just to move on a little bit. So in 120 Divine, which is like 20 years after the end of the ancient age, the baby chantry is one of its like first big things. Um, they got the first inquisition to sign the Navarran Accord. And we've talked about this before, but it's a really big moment in history. So I'm going to reiterate what it is. Essentially, the Navarran Accord abolishes the first inquisition as you were just saying, and creates the Circles of Magi, the Templars, and the Seekers of Truth as three independent orders. And they've all been existing ever since then until, like, 940 Dragon. <laughs> yep. Which they all still exist as, well, I guess in 940 Dragon, the Circles don't exist anymore, but the Templars and Seekers exist, just not as they were. They exist, but not under the arm of the Chantry. Right. Yeah. Well, I think now's a good time for a break. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, yeah, let's go to that break. Fellow survivors, Vault 76ers, patriotic Americans, this is Lieutenant Colonel Valeria of the New Enclave. Follow our stories as our cast of characters emerge from the White Springs bunker to face an uncertain future in an Appalachia overrun with monsters. But as I always say, the wasteland isn't going to tame itself. Join us here on the Modus Files. We can be found on any Enclave sanctioned network, including Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and more. Keep your pit boys handy and listen for further instructions. Valeria out. So, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around this. I'm listening. Ah, you've returned. A letter arrived for you. All right, so welcome to the middle of the show where we just kind of focus on some housekeeping stuff and all of that. Uh, I want to let you know at this time that we do have a Patreon. If you are looking to support us, if you like what we do, um, you can go ahead and go subscribe to our Patreon. We have different tiers that offer different things. Um, we are running a sort of promotional now that the first five patrons will have their names read out on the show until the end of time um or the end till we run out of dragon age to talk about um which is hopefully never yes hopefully never and so our two patrons that we have now are uh genesis and lisa max so i just want to say a special thank you to them for their support and supporting us in that um, and so, yeah, you can go find the link in the episode description, uh, subscribe to different tiers. You get every, any benefits from, you know, just ad free episodes to being able to come on the show with us. So yeah, you can find us there. And if supporting us financially is not something that you can feasibly do or something you want to do, that is totally fine. We recognize that that's not for everyone, but there is another way to support us. And that is to go into either Spotify or Apple podcast or both and leave us a review on Spotify. It's just a simple ranking system of one out of five stars. Um, Apple, you can actually leave a written review and we really appreciate that. And if you write us some words and give us a five-star review, we will read your review in a future episode of the show. And so, Shelby, do we have a review? Um, we do. I don't think we've read this one so far. Um, but if we have, y'all will just have to listen to a repeat. <laughs> so this is from Ulrock27. And... Their little headline is, Swooping isn't always bad. Dot, dot, dot. Love the backstory and history of this game. Keep up the great work. Thank you. Thank you so much for yes. that review. Thank you. And I guess swooping isn't always bad. I would say that the Inquisition definitely swoops. <laughs> <laughs> All, right. All right. Well, I also have a Herald. A Herald? We haven't done a Herald yet. Mm -hmm. I know. So this one is from Psych88 in our Discord server. Um, and if you're not in the Discord server, you should definitely be in it. 
because that's where we talk about all things Dragon Age. We talk about our episodes, debate, all kinds of things, and we also judge Austin when he tries to kill Zevran in his current playthrough of Dragon Age Origins. Listen, I just wanted to see what happens. (laughs) Okay, well, that's what YouTube is for. But Psyche gave us his Herald of Andraste, and his Herald is Morrigan, a Kunari mage. And she, of course, sides with the mages because she is one. Morgan also saves the wardens, but Stroud did stay behind in the fade. Um, Morgan loves a strong man, and no one is stronger than, of course, the Iron Bull himself. And he, of course, Iron Bull, I mean, is grateful to Morgan because she saves the Chargers. And everything else in Inquisition, Psyche hasn't quite gotten to with Morgan, the Kunari Mage, yet. But um, the next major plot point for him is probably going to be Wicked Eyes and Wicked Hearts. And he says that he's probably going to go for siding with Briala. So we are definitely interested in what other choices you'll make. And thank you so much for sharing Morgan with us. And good luck in Wicked Eyes, Wicked Hearts, because being a Kunari and a mage is not going to do you any favors. That is very much accurate. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And then always remember, you can show us your heroes, hawks, or heralds. You can send them to us in the Discord if you're there. You can email them to us at dalorecast at gmail.com. Or you can tweet them at us at dalorecast on Twitter. So, yeah. You ready to go back to... uh, Finishing talking about the Seekers? Let's do it. All right. My friend. You fear barbarians will swoop down upon you. Yes, swooping is bad. Yeah, this is gonna be fun. Hello, gentle listener. Every Friday, be sure to tune in. What the hell are you doing, Ampersand? (laughs) Hi, Charlie. I'm sorry I broke in. I thought I was the only one to talk to myself. Well, I'm letting everyone know about the Fumbling Four and the Almighty Crit. Woo-hoo! It's a 5e live play podcast. Join us every week. Where do we find it, yo, crusty coot? Uh, anywhere you can get all your podcasts. Woo-hoo! You find it every Friday, you stupid cat. <laughs> all right. So, Seekers appear throughout most of Dragon Age. Um, They, I think, are mentioned in Origins and are actually a pretty major factor in both DA2 and Inquisition. Um, And I do say that they're a major factor in DA2 because they give us, like, the whole plot device of why Varric is telling this story with the introduction of Cassandra Pentagast as a main character. And like we've mentioned earlier, they also appear in the book Asunder, as well as the short animated film Dawn of the Seeker. And um, we watched Dawn of the Seeker recently. It is interesting, um, a good story. I really like it. Not the best animation, um, but I love Cassandra, so I liked it because of that. And I do think it's a good backstory into like why Cass is the way she is. Um, so I liked it. I don't know. What did you think, Austin? I think it was a perfectly good story. And like, you know, a lot of times these video game films are not good and they create plot holes or, you know, breaks in canon and other things. But this film does not do that. It sticks very, very authentically to the world of Thetis that is laid out in these three games. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I will say... If you've watched the Mass Effect animated movie, what is that one called? Paragon Lost. Paragon Lost. Uh, the animation is definitely better than that one. Um, I'm still a little traumatized by the Krogan. Yes. Anyway. But, um, I think that the introduction of the Seekers is one of the most attracting things to me that attracted me about DA2 because so in Dragon Age Origins... You know, we meet the Templars, and the Templars are kind of the watchers of the mage, but Dragon Age Origins doesn't really have a mention of the Seekers. I mean, there might be an obscure codex somewhere, but 
Not that I remember. I think, I think there's a mention in um, the Broken Circle quest. I think Gregor mentioned something about a seeker. Hmm. And there, there are codex. There is, I think that that uh, codex entry I read before, I'm pretty sure that comes from Origins as well. Hmm. Um, but it's very obscure. You're right. And it's not, it's not discussed. Right. Um, it's just like a kind of throwaway line. So, yeah, it's a little bit of a late addition. It's not um, not something that's fully fleshed right. out from the beginning, for sure. And so you get that, and Beric very well, like, talks about the Seekers, and you're like, oh, well, what are these Seekers? Like, who are they? And, like, you know, she looks very, Cassandra looks very Templar in. Yes. And so you're, you auto, I automatically assume, it's like, okay, like, they're probably a part of the Chantry somehow, but what are yeah. they? And it attracting idea of like oh these are like the people who come in when you know shit gets down yeah true so um let's talk about like what they do not and maybe not what they do but like who they are as an organization Mm -hmm. and i think there's one main two main things two huge things that we got to talk about and the first is lyrium so seekers do not use lyrium famously do not use lyrium and so this makes their abilities very different from Templars. Um, even though they're able to utilize Templar abilities, it's kind of like all squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like that. Um, so Seekers develop their abilities through ritual and many years of dedicated training. And um, they also, they can't be possessed. And they are immune to mind control. Templars, regular Templars, are not immune to those things. Um, And then, of course, some Seekers can also gain other gifts, especially if they're particularly talented. Um, And depending on the individual, some of these uh, gifts can be something like setting the lyrium within a person's blood aflame and more. Cassandra mentions this when you talk to her about Seekers and Inquisition. And I think this this ability about like being able to use the Templar's abilities and the immunity to possession and mind control is probably what makes the Seekers invaluable. Um, Yeah, I agree. And in a lot of ways, the Seekers, I feel like should, they should be the ones mainly watching the mages because they don't become Lyrium addicts. Um, right and you know we see especially in the broken circle quest and origin like the demons don't just stick to the mages you encounter so many possessed templars and demons dealing with templars and so true so true i feel like the system would be so much healthier if there was like one seeker that was just stationed at every circle mm-hmm. and, like, and that was that was what they did and, like, if you look at it, like, Cassandra is, ironically, so much more level-headed than any Templar we meet. Even Cullen. Like, mm-hmm. she, and, like, the the interaction that she has with Cullen, when Cullen is basically, like, you need to relieve me of duty because I'm having lyrium withdrawals. And every, sorry, spoiler for Dragon Age Inquisition. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think most people know. And so, <laughs> she, and, and it's just, like, it's flat out, like, it's it's not emotionless, but it's flat out like just authoritative with the way Cassandra responds and just like you're not at that point. We're not there. Calm yeah. down, relax. Well, you know, you also have to think about it like just by nature of who they are as individuals, like and I'm not talking about their personality, I'm talking about their training, like she outranks him. Mhm. In the Inquisition, I mean at at the beginning at least, and also by their roles as a seeker and a former Templar. So, like, I think, of course, it makes sense that he would be deferential to her and she would be authoritative with him because of that. Right. Um, But you're right. Generally, like, the only time I think she is unreasonable, or not even unreasonable, but very emotional, is when you do the quest you just did, 
her personal quest where she's finding all these seekers that have been destroyed and infected with red lyrium and all this stuff. She's absolutely distraught as anyone would be. But even then she doesn't just like mindlessly go into a rage. She doesn't go into a killing spree. She doesn't just like fall down and sob. Like she doesn't do any of those things. She still is able to keep it together. And I think it is also hard to kind of suss out whether or not that's just Cassandra or whether or not that's part of being a seeker. But my personal opinion is that it's probably a mix of both. Right. And I think there are two other times besides the ones you mentioned where Cassandra is probably on the brink of losing it. And one is when we first see her in Dragon Age Inquisition where she's interrogating you, which makes sense because she's riddled with grief. Um, True. And I know the next one you're going to say. What is when it? she finds out about when she finds out about Varric lying to her about Hawk. Yes, I mean she <laughs> is close to. <laughs> she almost kills him. Right, and like it makes sense because you know she was kind of banking on like where she was going after the Kirkwall incident was like okay we need these people who hold this great influence over Thetis and like the hero of Ferelden if alive like. Yes, that's absolutely a person. They stopped the blight. They worked against insurmountable odds to mm-hmm. um, bring that. And then Hawk, uh, obviously, is takes a huge role in the Kirkwall incident. And really, no matter who you decide, who Hawk decides to side with, he has stakes in or both, she. in or she has stakes in both camps. Right. You're right. Um, That's absolutely true. And I think from Cassandra's point of view, she's not thinking rationally in that moment. Like she's very much thinking that she's being led by her grief, which I understand. She is thinking that if Varric had told me where Hawk was, Hawk, I could have gone and gotten Hawk to be the Inquisitor And then none of this stuff at the Conclave would have ever happened. The Divine would have been alive. The war probably wouldn't have started and we'd be fine. But Varric is coming at it like, no, if I had told you where Hawk was, Hawk would be dead. Don't you think Hawk is given enough? And that's the whole argument. Um, And I tend to side with Varric on that one. It's a really heartbreaking like statement when Varric leaves and he just looks... The animation is so perfect because he looks at Cassandra with this just look of just complete like grief and sorrow and just says, you people have done enough to Hawk. It's so true. It's so true. Um, well, as this is not the mini-sode about Cassandra, mm, yes. let, let's get back to the Seekers. Um, I just have one more point before we get into our side character. And that's about tranquility. Um, And this is a little bit spoilery, so beware if you haven't finished the game. But to become a seeker, the initiate must spend months undergoing a special vigil. And it's a full year almost of fasting, prayer, and separation from all distractions, including other people. So they're isolated for almost a year. And they're fasting. They empty themselves of all emotion and they focus only on the purity of their devotion. This renders the initiate, the potential seeker, it makes them tranquil. And the vigil, what the point of the vigil is, is that you're summoning a spirit of faith that then touches the initiate's mind, which then breaks the tranquility giving the seeker their powers, their abilities. The ritual, as we know from Inquisition, is kept secret from all of the seekers and even from the Chantry, being only known by the Lord, Lady, High Seeker. And Cassandra finds out because, you know, pretty much the entire seeker order is is not alive anymore. Um... And I think that's really important to talk about because that's a huge secret with huge implications for the rest of Thetis. I mean... It starts a... Well, I wouldn't say it starts. It is the... It is the match that lights the powder keg of the Templar Mage War. 
I kind of agree with that. I mean, I think when I look at all of these historical events, I think the beginning of this war really is the annulment at the circle in Daresmid in uh, mm-hmm. Ravane. Because they totally annul this whole circle that is arguably like the freest of all the circles. They like, it's more of a boarding school. They let them go home. Um, it's just more lax all the way and around. And Ravane when chan- has it culturally, sorry, Ravane has a much more lax view of magic. Right, exactly. So it makes sense that their circle would be that way. And the whole circle gets annulled for not really anything explicit other than just like being too lax, which then does two things, really. Um, Then Anders does what he does in Kirkwall and in Val Royale, um, their revolution is brewing, which we learn about in Asunder. So kind of those two things are happening not quite at the same time, but in similar time frames. And then they find out that tranquility can be reversed thanks to Wynne and Shale and Reese and Evangeline. Mm -hmm. And it all just goes and up in flames. So I looked looked to the circle in Daresmood as that's the beginning of this war. Right. And I think that the annulment in Daresmood really gives me sympathy towards the mages quite and like i would move to rebellion because at this point it's like i don't control my own fate my fate is based on the goodness and morality of a group of addicts basically is how i would view it (laughs) right um right and that is terrifying and it's oppressive and it makes sense i mean i don't Obviously, I'm not quiet about my dislike of Anders, um, but Mm -hmm. I do get it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, do you have any more thoughts about the Seekers, or can we move on? Um, I think that the Seekers, I really think that, to reiterate this point, that making Templars and Seekers as separate groups, even though they're kind of not separate, but they are separate, they are. They yeah. are separate. Is kind of a mistake. And I think, I guess, like, the more Seekers there are, the more risk there is that their rituals could become more knowledge or that, you know, they could realize that the Rite of Tranquility could be reversed. Um, but I think that having the Watchers be, not require Lyrium and be immune to possession, it's like the perfect defense against what they fear so much yeah i agree with that and i really honestly doing this research into the seekers it makes me feel like templars are extraneous like they're not needed Mm -hmm. you can just have five seekers stationed at a circle and obviously make make changes to the circles to make them more like nurturing school-like and nurturing and like all of those things that we talked about last episode um but just station five seekers there and you're good like they can take out half the one of them could just take out half the thing like five honestly is a little bit of overkill anyway so it makes me feel like templars are not even needed like they're the middlemen right in their story and seekers you don't have to worry about a blood mage infiltrating the circle and controlling your seeker exactly but that's not true with a templar and like if meredith had been a seeker it might have not been as bad yeah we'll never know the answer to that right Um, yeah and then my other thing is just a kind of quick little tangent question um isn't the spirit that inhabits when a spirit of faith um yes generally i think I'm not sure if they ever actually officially say that it's a spirit of faith, um, but she thinks it's a spirit of faith. Um, But she's like kind of guessing at it. So it could be something different. It would would explain, like, I do think that Wynne has a, not unnatural, but a surprising amount of power for a mage. Um, Yeah. And, like, just the things that she can endure. And, like, stat-wise, she... That's fair. Uh, and so... But it's really interesting implications of kind of combining that a spirit of faith touches 
the seeker and liberates them from tranquility and you have this mage that was saved by a spirit of faith and Mm. the mesh of that and like if because of that if when was made tranquil would she just become a seeker Mm. that's interesting probably not because she doesn't go through the vigil and all that kind of stuff right but but that's an interesting thought experiment yes but we'll never know because when is not alive and well (laughs) unlike what the keep says yes she is not alive spoiler i'm sorry asunder um anyway (laughs) so uh let's talk about some known members are you ready you want me to read the list of notable seekers oh i can do it either one okay i can do it okay cool do it so obviously notable seekers are obviously cassandra blah 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 pentagast you know, 59th in line for the Navarran throne. I think it's 54. Yeah. It's a ridiculously large number. <laughs> um, and then this one is interesting. Inquisitor Emeridan. Is 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 he like a claimed individual? Um, I think it's just because he was the Inquisitor when um, they were all kind of the same thing. But I saw that on the wiki, and I was like, you know what? Let's include it. I don't know if it's disputed. I don't know if um, he went underwent the vigil or anything. I think, but yeah. So he's included on the yeah. list. Um, and just an interesting uh, thing about that. That would mean that if you have Inquisitor of Meriden being a seeker, that means that one of the first seekers is an elf. Yeah, absolutely. Um. And then Lord Seeker Lambert, Von Reeves, who is the Lord Seeker before uh, High High Lord Seeker Lucius, who is another one, Corn, um, who is the High Seeker we see in Inquisition. Um, Seeker Byron, who takes a uh, major role in um, the Dawn of the Seeker movie. Um, And then Seeker Daniel, who you meet in Promised Destruction and is very sad. It is very sad. Yes. Um, yeah, so those are the ones we know. I think there are a few more that we know of, but not anyone that's, like, directly related. Yeah. Um, or has a huge role. All right. So, are you ready for our side character of the day? Um. Yes, I am. All right. So, today's side character is Lord Seeker or High Seeker Lambert Van Reeves. And he is one of the main characters from Asunder. And I know not everybody has read this book. um, And so if you haven't and you're concerned about spoilers, you should probably not listen to the rest of this episode. uh, Because the next like 10 minutes are going to be super spoilery. And we can't really tell his story without getting into spoilers. So um, that's just what it's going to have to be. So you can come back and listen once you finish the book. Um, but Lord Seeker Lambert is the head of the Seekers from 937 to 940 Dragon, which is not a long time, only three years. He does die, um, spoiler, very quickly in the story. Well, not very quickly, but like he dies a younger death. Um, so that's just a heads up. But, uh, Lord Seeker Lambert was born in 892, blessed in Orlais. So he is like 45 years old mm-hmm. um, in Asunder when we first meet him. Ish. Maybe maybe like 43, depending on the date. I don't know the exact date um, for when that book takes place. Y'all know I'm not good with dates. Anyway, so Lambert grew up in a wealthy and noble Orlesian family. Not surprising to me. He became a Templar at the age of 16 and served in Gislaine. Um, and he eventually became Knight Captain in 917 Dragon. So, this is where his story gets kind of interesting. Um, when he was Knight Captain, he was charged with leading a group of Templars to recapture a group of escaped apostates on the border of the Teventer Imperium. The apostates were taken captive by a larger group of Imperial Templars from Teventer, in the city of Cayman Brea. The confrontation with the Imperial Templars would have led to war, but Lambert was able to negotiate with them in order to prevent a catastrophe. This 
earned him the respect and friendship of the leader of the Imperial Templars. Their leader is Magister Urien Nihalius. Don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but... And it also earned him renown with the Seekers of Truth, which then led him to be inducted in 921 Dragon. So he started as a Templar first and became a Seeker. I don't know if that's common just because we don't know enough about it. To me, it seems like it's it's not common that most people um, join the Seekers as a child and then grow up and become a full Seeker, um, not like transferring between the two. Um, so Lord Seeker Lambert then served as the Seeker ambassador to Tevinter. Which he hated. He absolutely hated. Um, he, during this time, became much, much more extreme in his views toward magic while he was living in Tevinter. Um, and while also in Tevinter, he organized a coup that led to the arrest of the Black Divine in Tevinter, as well as the arrests of five high-ranking magisters. This coup elevated his friend, Magister Urien, to become Black Divine. Once Urien gained his position, he became obsessed with keeping his power and resorted to any cost. Of course, we know this includes blood magic. This was really hard for Lambert. Um, super, super extremely disillusioning to Lambert. Um, and it caused him to become much more conservative in his views toward magic. Um, and then ultimately he left Tevinter entirely. And you know what? Honestly, if I put myself in his shoes and try to think about it and try to have empathy toward him, even though I can't see this character, I understand how he gets there mm -hmm. because, you know, he doesn't start out as this super hateful person when he's just a regular person in the Templars. In fact, he's preventing catastrophe. He's preventing more death. He's preventing unnecessary death. And he gets sent off to Tevinter where he sees blood magic after blood magic after blood magic after death after assassination and all this stuff. And the one person he's friends with turns to blood magic too? I get it. Mm -hmm. I would become disillusioned too. I have become disillusioned with institutions for less. Right. So I get where he's coming from. And it's... It's a great point of acknowledging that, like, the individuals who join the Templars or the Seekers often aren't, some of them do, but often are not joining because they want to hold this power over mages or abuse them. They're joining because out of this instinct to protect them or they think it's a way for them to do good or to bring honor. And it's really, like, what we're pointing out when we talk about the critique of the Templar and the Seeker is a critique with the institution, a, a critique with the ideology and the theology towards magic that leads to an abuse of power almost always. Yeah, absolutely. And also I'll say a lot of Templars and I'm sure Seekers, but mostly Templars become Templars because they have no other option. Mm -hmm. You know, that's just true. It's just true. It's, the reason why there's a lot of people in our society who join the military because they have no other option and because it'll bring honor into their family. Mm -hmm. And I don't fault them at all. Um, just like I don't fault the Templars who, who feel like they have to do that. Um, so back to Lambert a little bit. Um, once he left to Venter, he pretty quickly impressed a lot of the seekers in Orlais. Um, and ultimately, this led to him becoming High Seeker in 937 Dragon. So, Lambert is one of the main characters in the Book Asunder, um, and that's written by David Gator. And he does a lot in this book. He is a very hateable character. Um, he's pretty terrible to every everyone. Like he's not a nice person. He's I don't think he's nice to a single person in the whole game or in the whole movie or ugh, in the whole book. Mm -hmm. um, but essentially, he comes to the circle after a failed assassination attempt on Divine Justinia V. He removes the Knight Commander, and he investigates both the mages and the Templars in the circle. 
And if you want more info on this, I've tried to keep spoilers to a minimum, but if you want more info on it, you should go read Ascender. Um, and at the end of the book, or actually like two thirds of the way through the book, Lambert basically accuses like all of the mages of treason, attempts to kill them all, and also attempts to kill Cole in the process because Cole is a main character in this mm -hmm. book. And this is another act, like I've, we talked about earlier, I think this is another act that really does lead to the Mage Templar War. Um, this is kind of like, it's kind of like a foil to Anders, I think. You know, Anders really instigates stuff in, in Kirkwall and it's like the Mage side of, of killing people. But this incident is really like the Templars or the Seekers version of being unfair to the mages. Um, so I think those, those two actions are good foils to each other. Um, I, I definitely think one is worse than the other, but anyways. And I think that it points to a thing about like an understanding the escalation of the mage war is that, you know, this annulment in Ravain, the Kirkwall incident, this revolution in Val Royale and the attempted annulment of that circle um all happen not like right after each other but in a close enough sequence soon that they build off of yeah. each other yeah within a couple years and i don't even it may not even be that long within one year probably um so that's really significant but at the end of this book lambert retires to his room um and he's basically held at knife point by cole who reveals his story um and cole's story if you're not aware um is that there was a mage a young mage named cole who was imprisoned in the white spire in the circle in val Royo, but was forgotten about by the templars and instead when he died when he was dying he was comforted in his final moments by the spirit that we later know as cole the Templars who guarded him covered all of this up, all evidence of his death um, to hide their shame, to hide what he did, what they did. And the spirit was helpless to act at the time. He couldn't really do anything about it. And Cole tells Lambert to look into his eyes, which is basically the same mantra he recites to his other victims. And then he kills Lambert. Um... So Lambert's death, there's a lot of other things that happen in between. I've skimmed over a lot, um, like a lot, a lot. So again, if you're interested in this story, you should definitely read the book. But Lambert's death is mistakenly presumed to be retribution from the Mage Rebellion. Um, so of course, because Cole's a spirit, they don't, they can't really prove any of it. They were the only ones there. I think Reese was there too. Um, but anyways, so Lambert's death, um, is, it's got wide reaching consequences because after he dies, Lucius Corrin succeeds him as the high seeker. Um, and as we know, Corrin is like not a good guy. He's the one that like punches the Chantry sister in the face in Inquisition when you first go to Val Royo. Um, and he continues his predecessor's crusade. And we can talk about Red Lyrium here if you want to, um, because, y you know, you just did this quest, Promise of Destruction, where we're investigating the, the prevalence of Red Lyrium in the Seekers and how that happened. And there's a lot of debate on when the Red Lyrium came into the Seekers, I think, whether it was under Lambert, whether it was under Lucius... Who knows? Mm -hmm. Do we know? What do you think? Um, well, it's a very interesting thing that happens because, so, because, because he knows, um, Lucius can't be possessed. So this envy demon can't be controlling him. So he either has killed... So, like, when you first find out about the Envy Demon impersonating Lucius, everyone's like, well, Lucius must be dead because mm -hmm. he can't be mind control. He can't be possessed. So the Envy Demon probably killed him and then take, took his form. 
But right. what actually happens is Lucius allowed the envy demon to take his place. Mm. And that supplied him with red lyrium. And he and the because red lyrium was seekers seemed to be resistant to red lyrium. Um, which probably has to do with something about possession because I'm just guessing red lyrium contains the blight. Um, I would assume that seekers might even be a little bit immune to the blight, um, or resistant to the blight because the blight itself is kind of a form of mind control because Mm -hmm. it links you to this kind of hive mind that is the dark spawn. Um, right, 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 right. And so he starts experimenting on Seekers and the Envy Demon is supplying the Seekers to him, to uh, Kara Oswin. And mm-hmm. whether that, when that happens or what happens is, I don't really know, but. Yeah, it's it's definitely interesting. I, I'm kind of of the opinion. I don't think Lambert would have ever allowed um, an Envy Demon to, possess him or control him in any way I don't think he would have been okay with that but I I find it hard to believe that all of the red lyrium starts with Lucius I Mm -hmm. just don't think there's enough time in the timeline for it to all happen that way so my guess is that kind of Lambert may have been into the red lyrium stuff but not the envy demon stuff right we know that the red lyrium that they get supplied obviously comes from the deep roads and there's the lyrium mine in the empires and the lyrium smuggling and stuff that happens in the emerald graves but i would think that given that corypheus has a unique control over the blight and blighted creatures he might be able to call forth red lyrium oh um and this is the establishment of Red Lyrium, and this we'll get into when we talk about Lyrium and magic. But the blight can only infect living beings. Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, which, it's what Bianca says to Varric, the implications that Red Lyrium contains the blight are huge. Because that means that Lyrium at some point is an organic, like, or is a living being. And so Corypheus might have some control and allow lyrium red lyrium to prop up and you know we see red lyrium at this temple of sacred ashes when we go there in the beginning of inquisition um and so i'm assuming that he used that to fuel his spell explosion thing right absolutely but that's kind of off topic right um but that's my point i think that it is possible that the red lyrium does begin with lucius because Obviously, you know, Alexius, the fear demon, the Taventer magister, the envy demon, they are all agents of Corypheus. So it makes mm-hmm. me think that Corypheus can sort of communicate with the Fade a little bit to like organize all these demons to come in. And so perhaps Corypheus is a master of playing on what other people want. And so I would assume that Corypheus either approaches Lambert or Lucius and offers him away, them a way to control these mages. Yeah, I definitely see that. Mm-hmm. But I don't think Lambert... I think Lambert hates magic and blood magic so much that he would never agree to that because of who Corypheus is. I don't think we can say the mm-hmm. same about Lucius. No. Lucius is very much, at least from what we meet of him, very much a person concerned with his own power. And he hides that in like, I'm exposing the corruption of the Chantry and the Seekers and everything Mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's all we've got about the Seekers. Yeah, well, we'll start. We'll keep moving on with these factions. Um, I do think that the Seekers are one of the more interesting factions just because there's a little bit more of mystery but thank you all for listening and we'll see you all next week on the dragon age Lorecast. thanks for listening to the dragon age Lorecast. as always you can find us on twitter at da Lorecast. 
If you have any lore questions, topics to unpack, or side character suggestions, email them to us at dalorecast at gmail.com. The Dragon Age Lorecast is a part of the Robots Radio Rocket Club. You can join the Robots Radio Network Discord by clicking the link in our episode description. If you enjoyed our show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe and give us a review. See you next time. How well do you know your video game lovers? Have you ever wondered how your video game bays stack up against all the other delectable digital dates? I'm Genesis, the girl whose motto in life is love, laugh, tequila. And on Two Girls, One Ship, we analyze, rate, and review all that the world of video game romances has to offer. And I'm Vervada, the hopeless romantic cat lady and lifelong gamer. But you should know that our podcast centers on character and romance analysis and doesn't shy away from exploring the fun of physical connection. Or from the deep emotional connections built between two characters, using specific in-game dialogue and the overall narrative journey. So join the two girls, one ship, shipsters, and remember, beauty is in the eye of the controller.